thank you for being the hope that everyone in my generation has been looking for. Thank you for... Thank you for turning on its head centuries of prejudice. The prejudice against rural areas. The prejudice against indigenous people. The prejudice that says that if you are a farmer, you must be stupid and you, you must suffer. That I want the next generation to be able to say that this generation made it possible for us to feed the world. And in fact, I, I want to record this for my children. I want to record that I was here when you were here and you said, we will feed the world. One, two, three. Raj Patel there addressing two and a half thousand young people at Terra Madre Giovanni We Feed the Planet in Milan, from where Farmer Rama has just returned. The Slow Food Youth Network gathered together young farmers, fishermen and fisherwomen, shepherds and shepherdesses to bring the voices of the future of food to the Milan Expo under the rallying cry of We, we Feed the Planet. planet. Um, we've soaked it all up and we're going to share so many stories um, from young farmers from all around the world over the next few months. What, would, what did you make of it in this event? I was really, personally, really just struck by the energy of this group of people from really all, all over the world. I think the, the biggest message from the whole event was there were so many people from all these different places who were all young people returning either to the land or the oceans to really, you know, they are committed to what the future of food is for the planet and that they want to be contributing to and they feel proud to be bringing food to people and good quality food. So many people told me little stories about they'd had one moment and they'd seen how important food was to people and they felt pri pride about being able to provide that to people. There was a very, there was a sort of energy that I imagine people in their communities are used to being the only person who's voicing this thing and voicing exactly. it again and again and again and looking around the room and seeing the conversations. It was mostly people sort of elated by finding a brother or a sister yeah. or a... the solidarity. That's kind of what we're hoping to do with Farmerama, isn't it? Is bring that solidarity between farmers and any, everyone interested in the farming industry together, you know, sharing the voice. So yeah. that's kind of what it was in one place for a few days, but hopefully Farmerama can carry that energy on long past the conference being over. One person we met in Milan was young crofter Robin Haig. Um, crofting, it's a system of farming small plots of land for food, um, and it's specific more or less to Scotland where it began in the 19th century. Crofters form a really deep personal relationship with their land, um, but they often have to supplement this with, with other types of employment. And crofting's a really old craft, but Robin's young, and like you were saying before, her experience of kind of coming back to the land uh, and deciding that that's what she wants to do with her life is one that's common to a lot of the people we've met in the last few days. I come from a croft, my father is a crofter. Um, and 
So I always knew that it would be something that I would do when I was older. Um, and I guess I just I had to go away to be able to come back. So I've been away for 17 years. Um, and at the, the turn of this year, I will go back to the Highlands and back to the Croft and um, work, work on the Croft with my father. Hello, I'm Bella Crow and I'm from Norwich, Scotland. Uh, we believe that everybody should have access to good food today, but we have to do that in a way that doesn't compromise our ability to grow food in the future. So it's about trying to address food poverty and all the issues surrounding food and climate change. Um, it's massive displacement of people from the land in Scotland. Um, the highland clearances, the lowland clearances, where essentially communities were pushed off of their land so that uh, rich people from England and some from Scotland could uh, farm sheep. And the kind of sticking plaster response to this was that we'll allow small bits of land which are kind of um, have a special status in Scottish law. They can only be used for crofting. Uh, although nothing was really done to halt this process, which was hideous and, and outrageous, there was this kind of uh, really small element of like at least some land has been protected for crofting, um, for food production. Normally, crofting communities uh, they're fairly small plots of land, plots of land, and uh, people might not make their whole livelihoods by working the land, but they're kind of a way of um, uh, yeah, producing some food and sustaining themselves. And what's also unique about crofting is that there's also a, a common piece of land, so uh, individuals or families will have their own land to grow vegetables or whatever, but then there's also a kind of a common grazing land which is governed collectively. I think this is a really exciting approach to the food system generally, that we need to really rethink the commons and perhaps have more collective ownership of land. So the importance of crafting, um, in my opinion, is that it links you inextricably to the land um, and it also is a link to um, culture and to history. It is the fabric of, of the highlands and islands and I think crafting is really important in the future um, because we've become so disconnected with the land and the way that we produce food has become so unsustainable and I think crafting has a really big role to play in small-scale sustainable food production. I don't know if it died but a lot of young people left the highlands so they didn't take over any crafts from their, from their parents um, and the average age of the crafter I think is around about 60 so and they tend to keep their crafts for quite a long time so then um, their children don't get the craft until they're maybe in their 40s or something. But now more people are starting to see how important crafting is um, for the future and also that crafting needs to be kept alive because it is such an important link to history and to culture um, and to sort of your well-being. Crafting links you to the land, it teaches you about the land, it cultivates the land um, and it links you to your the tradition and the culture of the indigenous people so even words for certain things in Gaelic are about the seasons or about how the wind moves across mm -hmm. um, a certain kind of water and a certain kind of weather so most of or so much of this has already been lost but we really need to link um, the older crofters or the elders 
to the young people um, so that these traditions and these, this knowledge is not lost because so much of it has already been lost. So I think there's, quite, there's become quite a realisation that we need to connect young and old to pass on these skills. Apparently Scotland has one of the most unequal land distribution systems in Europe and um, in the last five years reliance on emergency food aid has increased massively which just seems wild to me because there's just land everywhere in Scotland. Maybe could crofting be seeing a re-emergence? Well, Nourish Scotland certainly see it as part of the wider discussion about the role of agriculture, which Scotland finds itself in the position to explore. In May this year, the Scottish Government released a, consultation, a discussion document sorry, on the future of agriculture in Scotland. And they're looking to broaden the conversation a bit beyond the normal stakeholders, kind of the National Union of Farmers or uh, people who normally influence agricultural policy and engage the wider public and citizens in uh, what they believe the future of the agricultural system in Scotland should be. It's pretty exciting. There's kind of a bit more leanings towards taking into account the role of agriculture in protecting the environment and protecting communities. And so uh, Nourish Scotland in November is, is organising nine events across Scotland to kind of bring in more people to the discussion, uh, explain what it's about and how they can contribu contribute and just create a space where everyone can share ideas and reflect on what they think our agricultural system should be in Scotland. And so as part of this, we've launched a hashtag, you launched a hashtag on uh, what is farming for. So we're looking for uh, ideas about how we can maybe create a new social contract between farmers and society. What we're doing at the moment is trying to just ask people what they believe farming is for. For the first time ever in Scottish history, the 2015 Scottish Crofting Federation meetup was specifically geared towards young crofters. And as Robin sort of explained to me, it really is a connection from this new generation to the older generation of crofters, um, which is needed. And I think it's lovely the way that she describes these people as the elders. It's a really respectful way to talk about an older generation, I think. Mm -hmm. The Scottish Crofting Federation has started a database um, to list the skills of older crofters so that young crofters can log on and look at these skills and meet up with the people that they need to acquire the knowledge in order to keep, allow them to sort of run a successful craft. Is it kind of like a mentor scheme or...? I'm kind of like a mental scheme in that I think that these skills need to be passed on, you know, person to person, sort of using your hands, you need to be talked through how to do it. It's, I, I, I don't think it's the sort of thing which can be accessed by an online course. Right. But having an, an online database of what skills people have, I think in itself is quite a like powerful use of technology. Absolutely. So Robin and other crofters in Scotland are fighting like their own battle, which is very specific to Scotland, actually, to preserve a way of life. Um, but it, as we've said before, it's a journey that's mirrored by so many of the people we've met this week. Mm. Sticking in the same part of the world, sort of, mm -hmm. here's a Dutch entrepreneur hoping to see a resurgence in an ancient Celtic resource. Seaweed. Mm-hmm. I love seaweed. I'm Noor from Seymour Food. It's a startup in, in the Netherlands. Um, and we sell seaweed as pasta. I'm going to ask you why seaweed. 
I've heard that if you compare it to land-growing fruits and vegetables, like the kiwi is the, the king in terms of nutrition, but it doesn't come close to seaweed. That's true. It's true. Seaweed is, for one, super healthy. It contains a lot of fibres, vitamins, minerals, omega-3 fatty acids, um, no car- almost no carbs, almost no calories. So first of all, it's super healthy. And second of all, it is super sustainable. You don't need extra water. You don't need extra land. You don't need manure, pesticides. You don't need anything. It just grows and it's plentiful. So why aren't we producing it? Why aren't we eating it? That's a very good question. That's what I'm asking myself. A long time ago, it, it was very common to eat it in Ireland. When you were sick, you had to dip your seaweed into hot milk, but then it became poor man's food. So nobody wanted to eat it anymore because it's associated with, with being poor. Didn't happen to oysters, did it? The seaweed that we're using is Himontalia enojata, or the common name is sea spaghetti. Um, it grows in the Atlantic Ocean, like all the way down from Norway and then Scotland, Ireland, um, some in England as well, and then France, Portugal and Spain, and the Faroe Islands. Can it be, the, can it, can it be produced on a mass scale? Um, not yet. We have, last week, me and my, my, the founder of the, of the company, we went to um, a conference in, in France about seaweed. And we met up with a lot of scientists and we are trying to get it cultivated. Um, but the technology is not yet there, the knowledge is not yet there. And nobody actually really knows what to do with this, with this specific type of seaweed. So it's hard to get the right resources, especially because we want to harvest sustainably. Um, what we do right now is we have like different bays and we practice patchy harvesting. So we get like up to 10 or 15 percent out of one bay and different spots. So it can, you know, so we don't harm the ecosystem. And how do, do you have people who've been farming seaweed for generations? Is it a, a thing which is in families or is it something that people are adapting to now? And who owns the coastline? All the seaweed that we have right now is from Ireland and it is... I don't really understand how it works, but it has something to do with heritage rights. So it's like one family owns one bay and they are allowed to, to get the seaweed out of it. It's not regulated anywhere. So it's basically, you know, from centuries ago. It's a bit strange. They have to change it. Um, especially it's uh, the people that harvest for us now. Most of them were fisher, fishermen. Fishing has, you know, all these certifications, so it's kind of hard to to be a small fisherman in Ireland. And there's less fish in Ireland now. Exactly, there's less fish as well. So they are changing into seaweed cultivation. We don't recommend it to eat it on a daily basis. I mean, it's not gonna, you don't, your diet shouldn't exist of it, but it is definitely a good additive to your daily diet. And what's a good recipe? Our product is, is only seaweed, it's only dried seaweed. And we sell it as pasta because you can use it as pasta if you prepare it, if you like soak it or boil it. It's very, it has a very mild taste. So basically you can use your own favorite sauce. Like if you like bolognese, if you like carbonara, if you, you can even use it as spaghetti. Um, what I like the most is just with, with chicken and pesto, cherry tomatoes and some cecchini. And then it's, I love it. I love it, really do. Okay, so firstly, this is really exciting for me. I've, I've long had, I actually long have had kind of dreams of like running a seaweed farm. <laughs> um, it's incredibly good for us. It's easy to grow and it's, it's plentiful. 
Uh, so in in most ways, I'm really supportive of what Nor's doing. Uh, but there are a few things about this that bother me a little bit. And the first one is that it seems a bit gimmicky. Uh, do you think we really need to think of seaweed as pasta in order to be able to eat seaweed? Mm. I mean, I certainly don't. I eat seaweed all the time. But when I saw it being marketed as seaweed, I could, I could understand why they did it. It's much more viable. But also more than this, I'm not sure that this model, for all its talk of sustainability and health and environmental benefits, is actually doing very much to protect the people living in these communities or the resource of seaweed itself. Mm. So this startup is driven to make money, like that's what it, it mm-hmm. has to do. But if it is successful, it's going to put considerable strain on the resources, mm-hmm. on the seaweed itself. And yes, they're looking for a kind of breakthrough scientific solution and a way of way of growing the seaweed. They're looking away at farming the seaweed. But really, I think this asks bigger questions about how we handle these common resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Noor mentioned, these ancient rites. To some extent, she sort of implies a kind of outdated and perhaps archaic or not relevant. But maybe just like crofting, they could be seen as effective and fair way of managing access to these shared resources because certainly we need to address that, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think what what's interesting is just this whole premise of large-scale monoculture farming. Um, you know, wh- wherever you're going to apply it, whether it's to insects or seaweed or crops in the field or fishing. I mean, obviously, it's not monoculture fishing, but if you're trying to go after hundreds and hundreds of the same fish, it's always going to end up with the same issues, which is like, that's not really how nature provides things. Um, and you're pulling things out of ba- heavily out of balance. Um, and you're going to have to start finding ways to, you know, if it's on soil, you'll have to find ways to put nutrients back in the soil because you've taken too many out, those same nutrients, or whatever. So with seaweed, I'm sure there'll be unforeseen repercussions of farming seaweed what would be much more interesting is if they had a, an alternative business model that somehow really used small-scale farming initiatives and maybe they were just a distribution body or something. I think it should be part of the business model. I think it, that's what it needs because the business model is only to make money. Yes, they're thinking about how to look after these people and be sustainable, but it's not built into the scalability mm-hmm. of the business. Mm-hmm. Another issue that was troubling young producers was that of certification. Um, we spoke to a South African fisherman, and, or he calls himself a harvester, and a Lebanese farmer who both felt certification wasn't necessarily the w- way forward, um, which is something I think Patrick Holden expressed at times as well. And the fishermen in particular felt that the MSC um, Marine Stewardship Council certification was a bit of a marketing, a marketing ploy. He thought it was, in a way, lying to people about what was truly sustainable and that they were certifying some pretty large-scale trawlers that were capturing all sorts of stuff in their nets. And he saw that that was just a farce and an injustice to people who thought they were buying sustainable fish. So what I was interested in is, well, what would they suggest instead? 
currently in South Africa, we are busy developing uh, or uh, in collaboration with the University of Cape Town. We have been or are busy now in the process of developing a app which is called the Abalobi app. And Abalobi is one of the native languages that we speak in South Africa and it means fisher. So it's the fisher app part of the Abalobi app is always in uh, the control of the fishers. So whatever information that you put onto the app, whether it be weather conditions, whether it be fish that was caught, whether it be fish that is available to be sold, the Abalobi app is something that we are looking forward to uh, start using in our lives as opposed to uh, certification. And not just that, but also um, through some of our partners and other partners that we've had um, from uh, like uh, other countries. Uh, videos in order to be able to explain and show people the type of fisheries that we do because then we would be able to go on to say that listen MSC come on show us the video of this uh, sustainable fisheries that you are doing because here is our video of our sustainable fisheries that we are doing and also personal contact so if you speak to the fisher himself about those, these things these are the things that we would rather want to encourage and move away from this market where the consumers and uh, producers are so far removed from each other. But that's from a South African point of view and from a small scale fisheries point of view. But as my friend of Lebanon has said, yeah, there are ways and means how we can look at improving these things and not just about certification. Me, what, what I am doing is uh, I go to uh, one uh, small, small market, we call it Sioux. And uh, with the small market, you have contact with people. People ask you, you, you tell them how you work. And it works about trust. Trust is what uh, 100% efficient, but certification is the same, it's not 100. Uh, so it, it, it's work about trust. In Lebanon, it can work uh, because it's a small country. I hope it, it can work, I think so. I don't know for bigger production and bigger market. I don't know. I don't want to say yes or no. Uh, but yes, I think the yeah, the trust and the connection between between uh, the people. I don't want to say consumer, but between people and the farmer, to to have this uh, connection and to invite. I invite people coming. They can come. They can harvest apples. They can. Uh, you know, this kind of solution that are very easy and they make a connection between the people. That's part of the solution. Okay, so trust is obviously the ideal situation. You know, buying directly from whoever's harvesting the produce. But as Ryan implied, it, you know, on a large scale, that's not really feasible, especially with so many people living in cities and that kind of stuff. On the other hand, it seemed like videos and the app that Christian is creating in South Africa with the university, providing that transparency of sourcing of the fish, it seemed like quite a practical solution um, you know, for those who weren't able to know the farmer or producer directly. And so I was, I'm really excited to hear how that develops and I think that's a really interesting use of technology um, alongside small-scale farming. So we've spoken to a few different farmers about bringing tech to the seas and to the fields. So far the message has been clear that people enjoy the manual labour and remaining in tune with whatever it is they're harvesting. 
So they're certainly not interested in technology replacing their hard work, are they? No. Um, or taking the place of careful observation and using their intuition about the world around and what they're observing. Um, however, it does seem that technology could be a helping hand. You know, it could make small-scale farming or fishing more resilient, just providing very practical tools, kind of like the abalone app. And then it will truly allow us to feed the planet. A young farmer in the south of England certainly thinks so. I've had to get someone to make me a database to, to, to suit my company. Um, there's no open source piece of technology to do it. Yes, what we do is pretty specific, but um, it, it takes out human error and it takes out the, the laborious tasks. And um, It's all about speed as well. With that salad harvester, I can cut what well, advertises itself as being be able to cut 300 pounds of leaf in an hour. Wow. 300 pounds of leaf. That's like two or three people of leaf. Do you know what I mean? Where you, by hand, you wouldn't even get a couple of buckets in an hour. Do you know what I mean? And it makes small farming, small-scale farming, a much more viable uh, business enterprise. So do you think without the technology, could you compete with the largest... Larger oh, no, no, not at all. You couldn't. Not, not, it's, it's, you either have the label or you have the technology. It's, it's, it's one or the other, I think. Uh, either that or you, dig, you literally will put yourself in the grave. Um, you will. Or you burn yourself out in no time. Because it's, uh, you have to work smart, not hard. Work smart, not hard. That was Jack of Jack's Veg. Abby, tell us a little bit about, a little bit about Jack's Veg. Um, so Jack has been a, quite a, a young guy, really, really friendly and enthusiastic. And I think he's been growing for... A few years now, he's got his own plot of land and um, he does box schemes and he's starting to do honey and he's a real charismatic character and I think we'll definitely be hearing from him again because he's got a few different uh, innovative little strategies up his sleeve. What Did, did, you, did you have a sense of um, kind of attitudes towards tech from We Feed the Planet? I actually thought that the technology voice was almost completely missing. There are a few people, when I talked to farmers directly, they acknowledged just in conversation that they were using technologies in different ways. But funnily enough, I thought it was very interesting that none of the conference talks or anything actually ever were looking at how technology could be a useful tool. Um, and I, th I think there is a certain amount of fear that it's going to be like, oh, the drones are going to take over and the robots are going to come in and it's all going to automate. Um, and so there's, I think there's a tension with the small-scale farming movement and technology, which doesn't necessarily need to be there. It's like it doesn't all have to be about large-scale, scary, expensive tech that is going to put you out of what you're doing, you know, take you away from your craft. It can be a helping tool with your craft. To me, they come hand in hand, and they're there to help each other. Over the next few episodes, we'll feature a few more excerpts on how different people are using technology to help them make their farming practical and sustainable. That's a big part of what we want to do on exactly. Farm uh, So here we are, uh, reporting live from Tierra Madre, Giovanni, the Mercato surrounded by thousands of young farmers in the mixer and uh, you know, yeah, I mean guys you should be here this is this, farming is cool as you can hear there Nigel's still in Europe so we're pausing with his road trip for a week in Milan I met a couple just two weeks into an epic cycle journey across well basically the whole world 
out to meet people working with the land and cultivating biodiversity. Hello, I'm Marine. Hello, I'm Maxim. Uh, we just decided to uh, take our bikes and um, travel from France to Japan because uh, we really love to grow food. And thanks to our garden, we met many different farmers because we were searching seeds, non-hybrid seeds, and seeds that, uh, can, that we can reproduce ourselves. And so we wanted to get inspired by different people around the world to be able afterwards to get back in France with all these incredible knowledge that we can learn on the road and to cultivate our land. To collect all those seeds, and when I mean seeds, it's, it can be the seeds of ideas, and to come back to find our land and to prepare our future and to come back with like a mosaic of ideas and to build our own painting of our lives. Some uh, three associations of seed saver in France gave us uh, free seeds and sometimes forbidden seeds and uh, we have all this in our luggages on the bike and we take them to, as a symbol. Uh, a lot of farmers now are, are believing they have to buy seeds for, to feed the planet. That's what we're doing here to say no, maybe there, is, there are a lot of other solutions, alternative solutions. The seed bank will be there to to share, to be a departure for sharing. And uh, it's not only about a toolkit on specific knowledge, it's also about telling the stories of the people who are behind and um, making nice portraits of these incredible people we're going to meet on the road. Actually, we have a route that is uh, between France and Japan, but then we are really looking for incredible initiatives so we can um, do like travel for uh, several kilometers to go and visit you and uh, see what you're doing. So if you're a farmer, a seed saver, a researcher, a food activist, um, a living a chef, <laughs> living between uh, uh, France and Japan, please do contact us on uh, our website or our Facebook page, and we will be really, really glad to meet you. We have a lot. We will have a lot to share, and it will be really sad to keep it just for us. We love what Max and Marina are doing, so we're going to be checking in with them over the next few months. So catch updates here or on their website, autonomiaproject.org. And if you can offer some support to them on their route, then do get in touch. I know that they will really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on episode three of Farm Rama. Milan was absolutely great. And in the coming weeks and months, we're going to have a lot more stories from the people we met there. Thanks so much to Slow Foodies Network for putting it all together. That was really an epic journey, I think. Adventure for all. We want to close with a message that Ryad wanted to share with farmers across the globe. I realized that uh, there is so much common things, even with the fishermen from South Africa, the farmer from the mountain of Lebanon, even the guy with the pigs of uh, Holland, the, and the guy from Tajikistan. There is so much common things. And, and this is very, very important and, and uh, gives a lot of uh, positive vibration, a lot of energy for uh, us, for me personally. Uh, it's very nice to, to hear other stories, how it's difficult 
to change the agriculture, how it's, uh, we are all crazy in our uh, region, in our, in our village. I'm the, I, I am the crazy of the village, you know, they, they think I'm stupid, they think I will, I'm going to kill my trees, I'm, because I don't pesticide them, because I don't put fertilized chemicals in the ground. Though that's nice what uh, slow food uh, has done, I think it's to connect these people to have more power after that because uh, when we are together we are, we have more power and that's uh, that's the very interesting thing Farmerama is produced by me Joe Barrett Abby Schlagerter and Nigel Akehurst this week with the support of Joy Rose and Amy Cooper who joined us in the lab thanks so much ciao for now